3: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
4: Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for joining me for another episode of... Tales to Terrify. Typically, this is where I talk about movies or longer-format horror that I've seen over the last week, but I haven't seen any movies that qualify, and I haven't read anything I can speak about yet. I did just start M.R. Carey's The Boy on the Bridge, which a Tales to Terrify listener recommended to me, but I'm only a couple chapters into it. I'm going to break with the book and movie tradition for a moment and talk about Doom. For those of you that don't play video games... It's a video game. I remember when I was a kid, my dad got a desktop computer with a 486 processor. It ran at 33 megahertz, and it had a button on the front that if you pressed it, it doubled the speed of the processor to a blazing fast 66 megahertz. And then I got my hands on a copy of I- ID Software's Doom, I put hours and hours into the game, day and night. That game is the reason why my parents instituted a computer curfew, because I wouldn't get off the computer, do anything else, or sleep. Oh, and when I found out I could use the computer's modem to dial into my friend's computers and we could play together but be across town, I knew the future was here and my family knew it every time they picked up the phone to make a call and heard that awful squealing noise, that an external U.S. Robotics 14.4 modem makes. Unless you're one of those poor souls that works in an office that still uses a fax machine in 2017, hopefully you've forgotten that sound. Last year, Bethesda Software released a new Doom. I passed on it. I'm not sure if it was a time, or a money, or frankly an interest thing, but I didn't pick up a copy of it. But now that I'm down to a single job, I have a bit more free time and caught that game on sale. If you're a video game player and you're a horror fan, this might be a good one for you. It's fast-paced, incredibly violent, and about half of the game takes place in hell. And just to frame things correctly, really it's an action game first and then a horror game. If you want a game that's a horror game first, maybe try Resident Evil 7 or Dead Space. Let's hear some stories. Tim Stevens has been a journalist for the past 20 years now, writing about everything from video games to supercars. Tim lives in the wilds of upstate New York, but spends more time traveling than at home and does much of his writing at odd hours in tiny seats at 30,000 feet. This may explain why so many of his stories describe horrible situations. His personal website is digitaldisplacement.com and he can always be found on Twitter at... Tim underscore Stevens, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Stevens Tech. And now listen with me to Tim Stevens' The Kids Have to Eat.
3: How is it? that burned-out buildings still smell like smoldering ashes for months and years after the flames have gone. The blackened remains of this place had been yielding to the overgrowth for at least that long, yet the scent of the blaze that brought it down still hits me as I crept through the brush. My nose was full of that smell, ears full of my heart beating, Branches and leaves scraping across my arms and face, and the bitter taste of fear lingered on my tongue. Vision I lacked. It was a cloudy midnight, and I didn't dare flip on my light until I was inside of this place. This was the last house in the neighborhood, the only one I hadn't searched, night by night, one by one. I'd hit all the rest. You couldn't come in the day. They were active in the day, searching and hunting and screaming through the streets. Night was the only chance, staying low and sneaking, being smart, not greedy. Most of the other places had been long since ransacked filled with little more than trash and the awful leavings of what passed for humanity these days. But I did get lucky, sometimes. Canned tomatoes in a hidden pantry, a row of preserves in a glass jars in the basement, that sort of thing. It was enough to keep us fed, for now. But this house, this was the last house. It was the worst house, burned to the ground long ago. It looked hopeless and dark, dark and dangerous. I told myself the danger was why I had never explored it, but it was the darkness that really kept me away. But the kids had to eat, their stomachs full of only noise, and it was the only house left. I crept through the brush, black shape looming ahead my invisible goal. The remains of the front porch were collapsed inward, destroyed by the attempts of some wayward predecessor who mistakenly chose the direct path. I moved to the side, staying low, crawling to the outside cellar door I had spied before. I kneeled on the concrete pad that surrounded the opening. The latch on the door was pulled and flush holding the door shut tight against the increasing fury of the storms that swept through every afternoon. My breath came deep and slow, consciously so as I resisted the urge to turn and flee back through the brush. The thought of the disappointed, sallow eyes of my wife and children drove me to clumsily reach for the latch and pull. It moved with a groan that I felt down to the core of my being. I held my breath and stayed perfectly still, as if those tiny sounds would draw any more attention than the rusty metal's call already had. But I heard nothing around. Nothing other than the wind through those trees that still stood. I moved more slowly when opening the big metal door. One degree at a time, I forced the seized hinges to flex again. He issued a low, gradual complaint that I hoped wouldn't travel far into a hopeless night. Holding the door open with an increasingly unsteady hand, I took a step into the rectangular void below, foot scraping on the first wet, dirty, but solid step, My other foot found the second, and forcing myself not to think, I descended the subterranean stairs, pulling the hatch closed above me as I went, mind knowing I'd be safer with it shut, heart begging me to leave it open. Only when it was fully closed, and I had stumbled my way to the bottom of the stairs, did I dare reach for the flashlight in my pocket. I covered the end with my palm before clicking it on. Then let just a dim, skinny sliver of light escaped from between my fingers. Before me lay the remains of a wooden door. It was once a simple, thin thing, but now it was little more than a few charred bits hanging from distended hinges, doorknob misshapen in its resting place on the floor. I stepped through easily, gently, into the ashes that lay ahead. I kept my flashlight mostly covered as I slowly scanned the place. It had been a single open space at one point, but the floor of the first level of the house had collapsed in places, creating a maze of blackened rubble. I'd come this far, so I ventured on further, daring to fully uncover my light, only ever shining it at the ground, never ahead, never in any direction that might cast to the outside. I stepped past the tangled springs that marked the remains of a small mattress, past a once heavy chest of drawers that had fallen from above and now lay shattered and charred on the cellar floor. The deeper I went, the stronger the scent of the place got, and the more it started to change. The ashy, smoky smell was being gradually displaced by a foul odor, that roused a panic in some primal part of my being. It was the scent of death, an all-too-familiar essence to my nose these days, but there was something more than that, something different. Something horrible. I pulled my shirt up over my nose, a futile gesture that just left me with more of my own stench, and continued onward to the source. It wasn't difficult to find. Corpses of dead animals were piled in a corner, hundreds of them. Rats and frogs, mostly, but there were dogs and cats, too. No birds, but then I hadn't seen one of those living or dead in a very long time. Their corpses were not burned, their deaths more recent than that of this house. Bodies desiccated but intact, eyes shriveled but present, mouths open and teeth exposed in a terrible way. My mind stumbled over itself, processing the question but not finding an answer. What could draw all these animals here to die? My mouth hung slack as my little light poured over the awful scene, and as it panned onward, that scene grew more macabre. The pile of animal bodies ended and a mass of human corpses began. Thugs, all of them, the same who roamed the streets during the day, only slightly more disheveled in death than in life. But even they were only a precursor to the real terror. Off to the side of the room, in the corner, lay a human skeleton, its spine to me, My mind recoiled and I yearned to flee, but something drove me to step forward, to look, to see, that it wasn't just one charred and blackened collection of bones, but three. I'd seen the back of the largest one, curled up, arms wrapped around a second one, a smaller one. Between them, the third, smaller yet, a child, a child and its parents they died down here, died in agony, burned alive while the world went to hell around them. A scene had rushed into my mind. The roars of the unmuffled engines that had come in the night filled my ears, wild shouts echoing off the neighbors' brick facades. I saw the wife and daughter dashing to the basement. Driven by the screams of neighbors dragged from their homes, I watched the father barricading the doors hurriedly, then running down the stairs himself. "'I see you,' said the man in the street, a drunken voice angry at the broken world. "'I see you,' came the voice again, followed by a stone through the window. "'I see the father and mother and daughter huddling in the basement "'and hear a body throw itself against the front door.' The sound is clumsy and loose. The profanity that follows is sharp and bitter. Open the goddamn door, comes the voice again. As the little girl sobs, the mother kisses her forehead and the father squeezes them both. There's a sound of more breaking glass above. It's a bottle this time. Then another. Then the hushed whisper of a flame that spreads quickly, soon lapping at the bodies of the little family that chose one horrible death over another. I dropped the flashlight then, crouched down and beat my forehead with both fists, trying to push this vision out of my head as the flames laughed at my feet. Something was reliving a nightmare, making me a part of the agony that had come before. I could feel the heat, feel the fire, feel the charred lips of the father utter a final curse as they burned away. As I, too, struggled for breath, as I choked on the smoke, As I felt the vengeful presence in that cellar grow even more eager, my mind turned through the tattered remains of my life, of my own wife, of my own children, waiting for me now, safe for the moment. And in that instant, the vision stopped. The imagined flames withdrew. The sizzling blisters I'd felt on my hands and feet were salved. My tears... And freely as I sobbed. A voice whispered to me, whispered not through my ears but through my soul, an angry, insatiable voice born of loss and anger and hatred and of the flames that melded it all together. An otherworldly bitter voice that told me of a hunger for retribution greater than I could ever understand more painful than I could ever imagine, a hunger that could never be quenched, but only sated. The voice had told me enough, showed me enough. I turned to leave, to escape the basement and the presence that lurked within. But before I went, I crouched down with trembling knees to pick up my flashlight, clicking it on and off A few times to make sure it hadn't been damaged in the fall i'd need it tonight to show my wife and family the way to guide them through the brush down the steps to bring them back to this place where their souls would feed those with a hunger greater even than their own
4: That was Tim Stevens' The Kids Have to Eat, as read by Jake Wacholtz. Jake has finally found his career path in education and completed his first year of teaching this past year, where he taught special education math. His hobby is hobbies, and now that includes reading horror stories for tales to terrify. He lives in Ohio with his wife, daughter, and dogter. Thank you, Jake. Our second story of the night is from Krista Carmen, who lives in Rhode Island, with her husband and a beagle who rivals her in stubbornness. Her fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies and designs, and her short story, The Girl Who Loved Bruce Campbell, is forthcoming from Comet Press's Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Volume 2. She works for Pfizer in clinical trial packaging and at a local hospital as a mental health clinician. When she's not writing, she is volunteering with one of several organizations that aim to maximize public awareness and seek solutions to the ever-growing opioid crisis in New England. You can find her on Facebook at www.facebook.com christaqua or on her website at www.KristaCarman.com. Link to both will be in the show notes. Listen with me to Krista Carmen's Liquid Handcuffs.
0: Olive sat cross-legged in her office chair, scrolling through the text messages on her cell phone. Her door was shut to deter other counselors from interrupting her. Patience had to be buzzed back by the secretary to gain access to her hallway. So there was no threat of disturbance from a perpetual no-call, no-shower deciding that now was the time they wanted to discuss their latest love triangle or legal issue. She was so tired. Her position at the Methadone Clinic, an opiate replacement treatment center for heroin and prescription pill abusers, had her arriving for work at six in the morning. Living on a clinician's salary in Boston was next to impossible. So two or three nights a week... She was cocktail waitressing at a trendy restaurant downtown. Last night had been trivia night in the lounge, and she had gotten stuck there until after midnight, despite the trivia questions ending at ten o'clock, held hostage by a hipster couple ordering never-ending IPAs followed by never-ending espressos. She took a sip of her own coffee, but it was cold, She was loath to cross the clinic lobby to heat it up, wanting to keep up the illusion that behind her closed door she was in session. She was still perusing her text message archives, wondering if it was too early to send the much-needed inquiry out into the world, when she heard a commotion in the hall. "'You can't go back there!' Kathy yelled. Olive heard a grunt, heavy breathing, then silence. Walking to her door, curious now, she started to turn the knob. The person on the other side of it pushed it open with such force that Olive reeled backward, the side of her heavy oak desk the only thing that kept her falling to the floor. Eddie Vance gave her a menacing look as he shut the door behind him, locking them both in. Why did you tell Nicole to break up with me? He asked her, his pleasant sounding voice in direct contrast to the sneering curl of his lip. Excuse me? She was trying to buy herself some time, but she knew exactly what Eddie was referring to. Twenty three year old Nicole Price, attractive in a big bouffant and fake eyelashes kind of way, whom Olive had been working with since her admission to the clinic about one year earlier had been weighed down with immeasurable torments since getting together with Eddie. He had been the cause of Nicole getting evicted from her apartment, fired from one of two waitressing gigs in the North End, and, once she'd started doing well in her treatment, numerous dirty drug screens, after he'd dangled heroin in her face one night too many when she had gotten home from work. Olive had not told Nicole to break up with Eddie. But she had worked hard with the girl through motivational interviewing techniques on uncovering her long-buried ambitions. And with time, Nicole had realized on her own that in order to accomplish her treatment goals, Eddie had to go. The last time Olive had spoken with Nicole, Nicole had told her with undisguised pride that she had gotten a new second job as a hostess at a popular restaurant by Fenway Park, was looking into financial aid to go back to school, and had not spoken to Eddie in over a week. And now here Eddie stood, having somehow gotten past the security guard, the secretary, and the locked door from the lobby to the back hallway, focusing his rage at her like a laser beam. "'Where the hell am I supposed to live now, huh?' She kicked me out of her new place. Did you know that? Of course you knew that. You're the mastermind behind all of this. Nick never would have kicked me out if it wasn't for you and your crappy advice. As he said this, he took two steps toward her and pointed a meaty finger at her chest. She could smell his musty aroma of cigarettes and wet dog. Nicole had always complained about Eddie's ever-expanding pack of pit bulls, dogs he collected like his many addictions, despite a long-standing inability to take care of himself. Olive could hear hubbub in the lobby. Her office was the first door on the right, the closest to the lobby door. She hoped that the secretary had found someone with their keys on them by now since Kathy was always misplacing hers, always asking other staff members to let her into the reception area, the bathroom, the building in general. Olive wasn't scared. Not yet. But she also did not want to wait to find out how far Eddie's anger would propel him. Do you think it's easy being me? Eddie was asking her when she turned her attention back to him. I had a girl who was taking care of me. "'who loved me. "'Without her, I'm just another junkie on the street. "'But you don't get that, do you? "'To you, my life is just a game. "'You've never had to scramble for your next high, "'your next meal, a place to sleep at night. "'You learned everything you know "'in a big, fat counseling textbook, "'and you preach your ideas "'and hang up your fancy diplomas.' and you give your advice, never thinking about how it affects actual people. She could hear a key turning in a lock now, not her door yet, but close. I'm sorry you feel that way, Eddie, she said, not meaning it, just biding her time until Pedro, the security guard, or Steve, the clinical director, or someone, rushed through the door to rescue her. "'You bitch!' he said, and his tone, so much quieter now than it had been just moments before. Completed her transition from worried to frightened. "'You're not sorry, but I can make you be sorry.' A key turned in her lock now. The door opened, and both Pedro and Steve were there. Pedro grabbed Eddie under the arms before Eddie even had time to turn around and see who had come for him although Olive imagined it wouldn't be too hard for him to guess. As Pedro dragged him out the door and down the hall toward the back exit, Eddie released a torrent of profanities, while Steve walked deliberately behind them, reading from an emergency discharge paperwork in his hands. Jesus, Olive thought. I hope they didn't make me wait for the reinforcements while Steve printed out the discharge spiel. You are not to come on to the property for any reason, Steve read. If you come onto the property, the police will be called and security will escort you from the premises. If deemed necessary, the West Street Health Clinic will press charges. Due to the aggressive nature of your actions, you have forfeited your right to appeal your discharge. The state of Massachusetts requires a signature on all forceful discharges. However, if you refuse to sign this document, that does not negate the binding directives of said document. "'Edward Vance, will you sign your discharge agreement?' "'Go to hell!' Eddie spit at him. "'Pedro, get him out of here,' Steve said, "'and while Olive was certain there were a few more lines to be read, "'she could see Steve would not be delivering any more of his oration. "'Olive retreated from her vantage point in the doorframe back to her desk, "'and Steve followed her into her office. "'Are you all right, Olive?' "'What did he say to you? What was that all about?' Steve asked. Olive let out a small sigh and stared fixedly above Steve's head. She planned to downplay what had just happened as much as she could. Therefore it was too soon to make eye contact without her emotions betraying her. "'I see Nicole Price for individual counseling once a week. He thinks it's my fault she broke up with him.' She hoped the shortest possible explanation would suffice. "'I see,' Steve said. He was a no-nonsense clinician from Montana. Olive had always appreciated that she could abandon the fluff when dealing with him. Now more than ever. "'Do you need to come into my office and discuss this further, debrief and what have you?' She knew Steve would accept her no at face value. "'He gave a curt little nod and started from her office. "'What time is your next appointment?' he asked her. "'One o'clock,' she replied. "'Use that time to get your head on straight. "'You know where to find me if you need me.' "'And with that, she was alone again.' "'It was while trying to scroll through her text messages again "'that she realized how shaken up she was.' Her hands were shaking, and she'd gone past about thirty without seeing a single one. She pushed her chair back from the desk and stood up. Fresh air, she thought. A little fresh air is just what I need. Her heels clicked on the linoleum as she walked down the hall toward the door Pedro had dragged Eddie out of a few minutes before. The air conditioning was on full blast and she looked forward to the moment when she pushed the heavy door open and could relish in the early summer sun on her face. May had been uncommonly cold, but June was finally fulfilling its promise of warm nights and beachworthy days. Olive pushed the door open, and for a few seconds she did get to enjoy the heat of the sun on her chilled skin. Then the black cloth was pulled down over her head, and she was yanked so quickly from her feet on the back stoop that one of her high heels flew off. She heard the unmistakable slide of a van door opening and was thrown onto a bench seat. Someone already inside the car rolled their impressive weight onto her lower body, and lifting her torso up like a rag doll, wound something around her neck "'effectively fastening her shroud. "'Likewise, her hands and feet were bound. "'The door slid shut. Two male voices conversed in low whispers. "'She felt the car back up, then lurch forward. "'Some still-sane voice in her head "'told her to pay attention to the direction they were turning "'when leaving the parking lot. "'She did so. "'They turned left, But only minutes later she'd lost any sense of direction or bearings in a city north of Boston. She knew only well enough to get to work and to the CVS or Dunkin' Donuts near the clinic. Olive bit her lip to keep from crying out in fear. Before panic could completely engulf her, she felt the van begin to slow, then come to a stop. "'Get her out,' the voice from the passenger's seat said. There was no question that it was Eddie Vance. "'What the hell do you think this is? "'I snatched her. "'I drove. "'This is your idea. "'You get her out.' The voice was familiar in the way that you could be half-asleep on the couch while your boyfriend watched a movie and recognize the actor's voice, but not name him until you peeked at the screen. She couldn't place it without seeing the face.' Two car doors opened, then shut, one after the other. Rough hands pulled her from her prone position to a stand. March, bitch, Eddie said. In the two seconds that she hesitated, he pressed something cold and hard into her back. Or my pocket knife can ask you to march. She marched. Olive sat in the metal folding chair, wishing she'd worn something warmer to work that day. The basement she was in was damp and smelled like the pumpkin she'd forgotten about the past fall and had had to unearth from a rotten pile of leaves after a rainstorm. Eddie was duct-taping her wrists to the arms of the chair. He'd already taped her ankles to the chair legs using one entire roll of the stuff, "'and, oddly, her torso to the chair back. "'The tape spread over her arms, not under them. "'Now he was using one roll per wrist. "'She was having a hard time internalizing the knowledge "'of what was happening to her. "'It was surreal enough without the black cloth over her head, "'which she'd now determined to be a thick, stale-smelling sweatshirt. "'She heard Eddie leave the room.' There were several long minutes of silence. When she perceived that he had entered again, he walked directly to her and ripped the sweatshirt from her head. She peered up through her tousled hair at his red face, contorted into a deranged expression that distracted her from what was in his hand. "'Well, well, look what the cat dragged in,' he said, his voice squeaking like a prepubescent boy's only with hysteria, not hormones. I told you I'd make you sorry, you snotty bitch. And now look, what a predicament you are in. Listen, Eddie, she tried, and he rushed at her with a quickness she would have thought impractical for a man of his normally clumsy nature. She'd seen him with Nicole around the clinic, goofy and somehow chubby despite his long history of opiate use. "'The sports jerseys he always wore, stained and tacky. "'He was inches from her face when he stopped, "'and his hot breath made her squirm despite her numbing fear. "'Don't listen, Eddie, me. "'Don't, don't, don't! "'Too late. "'You were in real deep as it was. "'But after that security clown dragged me out of there, "'I happened to run into Nicole.' and she refused to even speak to me, to even look at me. That was quite unlucky for you, you see, because now I know exactly what to do. I know exactly how you're going to convince Nicole to take me back. When he took a half-step back, she saw what was in his hand. Everything in the room, the half-circle of concrete walls, the dirty bedclothes balled up in one corner, the madman himself... "'shrank away, and all that was visible through her tunnel vision "'was the orange cap of the hypodermic needle. "'With effort, she tore her eyes away from it "'to regard him with utter horror. "'But he was already zeroing in on her arm "'and approaching her again. "'As she attempted to struggle, "'she realized why he had taped her the way he had, "'with her arms against her torso.' She was unable to flap her elbows and thwart his impending efforts. Worse, the tape itself was acting as a tourniquet, and the veins in her arms were already pronounced. An easy target. Still, she struggled, until he, needle-poised an inch over her arm, pointed out. "'The only thing thrashing around like that is going to do is cause me to miss my mark. Do that enough times and you'll have an infection.' Requiem for a Dream style. She froze. He hit the vein, her blood exploding into the chamber like a tiny fireworks display. The plunger pressed down as far as it would go, and then the fireworks display was in her head. Olive knew from her work at the clinic that heroin users, under normal circumstances, if any heroin use can be considered normal find it hard enough to keep track of time, take away all outside influences, the normal rhythm of day and night, clocks and cell phones, keep a steady influx of filled opioid receptors in the brain, and you have a perfect recipe for absolute oblivion. If Olive's life had depended on it, and in a way it did, She could never have determined how many times, over how many days, Eddie flooded her veins with the beautifully noxious heroine. Her existence seemed to take on a dreamlike quality, and even the temperate ebbs and flows of her highs, temperate being the one factor that seemed to allude to Eddie never letting more than a few hours go by without visiting her in her dungeon dwelling, seemed blunted from being experienced in their absolute values. Rather, everything seemed hypnagogic, blurred, ambiguous. She was no longer taped to the chair, but locked basement door and immovable windows were as severe a barrier to escape as any in her apathetic state. Eddie had bombarded Olive with such a constant stream of heroin that her natural state was now one of platitude. A prisoner held hostage via liquid handcuffs. Eddie could have left the door wide open, and Olive would have lay placidly among the dirty comforters on the concrete floor and awaited her next dose. And on what was the tenth day of Olive's captivity, he did just that. The door stood open on its hinges, the light from the upstairs forming a triangular spotlight on Olive, lying in the fetal position, on a torn and urine-stained rug. When she didn't run off on her own accord, Eddie took to shouting at her like one would a tiresome dog. And finally, when there was still no movement from the thin form, he pulled her up, her stance that of a drunken sailor, and slogged her up the stairs, her bare, dirty feet bouncing off each step like a child dragging a Barbie doll behind her by the hair. Upstairs, Eddie discovered that Olive was still too high to walk. He left her sleeping on the couch for a few hours while he played video games next to her, a frat boy waiting for his overly intoxicated co-ed to wake up and fulfill her end of their one-night-stand bargain. When she began to stir... He scooped her up and deposited her in the same minivan she'd been abducted in. He drove halfway to the clinic from his brother's apartment, which he had broken into and used for the past ten days, his brother being the acceptable non-junkie child and therefore invited to his family's summer spot in New Hampshire for Memorial Day weekend and the week following. The money that funded the dope he'd painstakingly dosed his captive with as well as copious amounts for himself. He'd come by easily enough after pawning every single object of value in his brother and sister-in-law's house. The car idling on a deserted side street, Eddie was on his fourth cigarette when Olive sat up, a reanimated corpse, bride of morphine. Comprehension fought through the fog for the first time in days and days, and the look of horrified understanding that affected her gaunt features was so depressing it was somehow, morbidly, comical. "'Welcome back to the land of the living. "'Or is it?' Eddie asked her. But the wicked gleefulness that seemed to drive him ten days prior was replaced by a grim resignation. "'You're free to go. "'Feel free to go straight to the cops, "'although I suspect you are of sound enough mind even now.' "'to realize that if you went to the police with this story, "'they will lock you up in the psych ward so fast "'your head will spin. "'You'll look like the -the run-of-the-mill junkie, "'desperate and out of dope. "'Only an imaginative one, "'with a desperate yarn for sympathy, "'and maybe the fast route to a hard-to-come-by detox bed. "'Regardless, I have a hunch that not long from now "'there's only one place you'll be interested in pursuing anyways.' he leaned over and retrieved something from the glove compartment. Here's a little going-away present for you. There's enough cash in here for one of two things. Cab money, either to your apartment or St. Edith's Detox Center, your choice. Or a bag of heroin. And just in case you choose door number two, here's something else for you. "'He reached over the center console into the back seat "'and dropped the cash in a folded-up piece of paper into her lap. "'Dealer's number. On me. "'They usually don't accept new customers "'without a difficult and time-consuming interview process of sorts. "'Jumping through hoops, that sort of thing. "'But I was such a good customer this week that you are in luck.' "'He checked the rear-view mirror, then opened his door.' Her window was opened, and when he leaned his head in and gestured for her to pick up the cash and number, the smoke from his cigarette met with the remnants of the exhale he'd left behind before jumping out onto the street, giving the effect that he was caught in a tornado of cigarette smoke. She groped with sluggish fingers for the money, and tucked the notepaper in with the bills without discrimination. Eddie opened her door and pulled her out by the shoulders— "'Oopsie-daisy,' he said. "'Oh, I almost forgot. "'Here are your keys and your cell phone. "'I even charged it for you. "'This stuff was in your pocket that first day. "'It's obvious why I couldn't let you keep them on your person. "'But now, I suppose, "'you have everything you need to solve your little dilemma, "'if it can even be considered as such.' "'He smiled a nasty smile at her "'as he got back into the car. "'My guess is that... Even if you make it back to your cushy little counseling job at the clinic, you'll be singing a mighty different song to Nicole. Having to power through life's challenges with this monkey on your back. Having to survive as a dope fiend. Won't see if you are so quick to judge Miss Olive. He pronounced her name like the -the over-the-counter pain reliever, Aleve and Olive felt like she was listening to him from underwater. Before she realized that his monologue was over, he was peeling out from the side of the street, and she watched his taillights disappear around Webster Avenue one block up. Her head was spinning. She could use some Aleve, she thought wildly, her brain grasping at nonsensical connections, nerve endings misfiring in confusing spurts and starts. No, she could use some. She put her hands in her pockets and pulled out the wad of cash in one and her cell phone in the other. She could go home, she thought. Go home and call a friend. Or call Richard, her boyfriend. Tell someone what had happened. Or she could go to the hospital, be treated like any other individual who is the victim of violence. After all, she had been kidnapped, attacked, assaulted she stopped moving when she noticed she had spun around in innumerable circles as she'd been pondering what to do next she squared her shoulders and her jaw knotted into tense balls of jumping muscle as she thought olive picked up her cell phone and dialed she needed to call someone who could help her she needed to call someone who could take care of her and her burdensome affliction A voice answered on the third ring. In as condensed a version as possible, she explained what had happened to her. The voice murmured in understanding, said he would be right there. Olive hung up. When the car pulled up to the opposite side of the street from where Olive sat, perched expectantly on the curb, she saw he was driving a gold minivan, People always drove minivans when they wanted to disguise their more sinister motivations. As she hopped in, happy to be in the front seat rather than thrown in the back, she saw that even a low life equal to her in status was dismayed by her appearance. She pulled the visor mirror down and surveyed her skeletal and bedraggled visage. No matter, Olive thought. She was a short time away from being able to experience a heightened reality where appearances did not matter. "'How much do you want?' the dealer asked her. Olive reached out for the still-opened car door and slammed it shut. Olive unlocked the door and let herself into the quiet room. She looked around taking in the sights of her cozy office, tapestry on the wall, plants of a kind made to sustain lightless existences, counseling textbooks, diplomas on the wall. She opened a drawer to her left and pulled out a compact mirror, surveying her reflection again after the ten-day affair. "'Unreal!' She whispered out loud, unable to believe that the dreamlike chain of events had actually happened. She sat for a few moments, taking slow, even breaths. With spidery sidesteps, she slunk back to her office door and opened it a slit, peeking down the hall. Satisfied that it was empty, she returned to her desk. She took in another long, deep breath. When she let it out, she opened the other top drawer of her desk, the one to her right, furthest from the door and from the chair her patient sat in. Excavating the small decorative box from the drawer's depths, she unlatched it and began to assemble the paraphernalia. The phone call Olive had made hadn't been to the number on Eddie's slip of paper, but to her own dealer. "'the one she'd had for the past two years. "'She laughed to herself, "'remembering how she'd feigned terror "'at the sight of the orange cap of the syringe in Eddie's hand. "'Yes, she'd been scared at first, "'unsure what Eddie's intentions were. "'But when she realized what he had planned, "'she could have laughed at the comical irony of it. "'Poor, pathetic Eddie!' "'thought he was going to scare her and teach her a lesson. "'Instead, he'd relieved her of the chore "'of having to finance her own habit for over a week. "'Her preparations complete, "'Olive expertly injected 70 cc's "'into the basilic vein on the underside of her arm. "'She supposed that her surreptitiousness and vain choice "'prior to being held captive "'had contributed to Eddie's ignorance of her true condition.' That, as well as her overall appearance, her dress and demeanor. Because, as the saying goes, appearances can indeed be deceiving.
4: That was Krista Carman's Liquid Handcuffs, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase— when not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In between times, are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you, Josie. And if you are interested in zombie books and additional stories involving heroin, don't forget to check out a personal favorite of mine, Peter Stenson's Fiend. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitzey and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
0: This presentation
3: has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.